0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Folks shut up at home with kids, angst, and closed shops are soothing themselves with isolation cakes, quarantine cookies, and sharing recipes for stress baking.
0: Every other picture is of someone standing proudly with their loaf of sourdough or whatever type of bread they're making. Sometimes beautiful and sometimes not so beautiful, but really, who cares? I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on
1: Second Thought, NPR chef Kathy Gunst on turning boredom into brioche and stress into sourdough. Plus, Wahida Clark transformed a federal prison sentence into a career as a best-selling author.
2: So then I start visualizing my name on the spines of the books, Waheeda Clark, Waheeda Clark. That's when I got it. I said, I'm going to write me a book.
1: The queen of street lit on how she got her start and launched a company to help other inmates find their voices. And Southern Book Award winner Jessica Handler on what she's rediscovered while staying at home. Life in lockdown with On Second Thought. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. One of the ways that people are coping with generalized coronavirus anxiety is baking. Maybe you've noticed friends who you've never thought of as bakers posting photos of homemade goodies with hashtags like quarantine cookies, isolation loaves, or stress baking. Over the past three weeks, flour, yeast, sugar, and eggs have been flying off supermarket shelves like so many rolls of toilet paper. Well, it's not a complete surprise to cookbook author and NPR here and now resident chef Kathy Gunst. She and former Food Network executive Katherine Alford wrote a book together called Rage Baking, The Transformative Power of Flour, Fury, and Women's Voices. We got in touch with Kathy at her home in Maine to talk about the resurgence of baking. Kathy Gunst, welcome. Thank you so much, Virginia. Well, I just read that Google searches for bread hit an all-time high at the end of March. What is going on?
0: I I just read that as well, and if you follow any kind of social media, it seems like every other picture is of someone standing proudly with their loaf of sourdough (laughs) or whatever type of bread they're making, sometimes beautiful and sometimes not so beautiful, but really, who cares? Um, I think there's several factors at play here. I think first and foremost, we have A new sense of time. Most all of us are home. We're working from home. We're living at home. Many people are homeschooling their kids. They're juggling a million things. And yet we're not commuting and we're not running to soccer practice and we're not dealing with the myriad of things that made up normal life as we knew it just a few short months ago. So suddenly we're thinking about food and eating in a new way because there are limited resources. We often go to the grocery store with a list in our hand and find out, wait, I can't get half those things. As you mentioned, flour and yeast have been disappearing from supermarket shelves. They now have Um, limits on how much you can buy if they have it in stock. And people seem to want it the way people used to want special cheeses or incredibly beautiful fresh fish or meat. Um, There is a resurgence, or I would maybe not even call it that, there is a new passion for baking that we've never seen in this country. And the other thing, of course, is that Almost all bakeries across the country are shut down. So if you want fresh bread, if you want a cake, if you want cookies, you have to learn to make Mm. it yourself. Mm. You mentioned sourdough. Uh, I've I've seen
1: people posting, you know, announcing the name of their sourdough starters like they're (laughs) newborn babies.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What's the the sourdough thing? Welcome, Clarence. Let me introduce Penelope, Um, the sourdough thing is that you can make sourdough without yeast. So if you can't get yeast, you can make a flour dough starter, which is there's yeast in the air. It's an organism that's everywhere. And you can make sourdough. And what you do is you make a starter and then you have to feed it. So it is like having a new child. I mean, you have to take care of this starter. I have seen photos on social media of people that have made sourdough Sourdough starter, put them into small plastic bags and pinned them to trees throughout their neighborhood and said, Free sample sourdough starter, take me and bake. Um, like this is unprecedented. You would never ever see something like that way back when, you know, in early January. So this baking thing has really caught on. It is, as I said, I think it's become, other than sewing masks, the number one activity.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned sewing because there is a kind of I guess, return to domesticity. And that's one of the things in your book. Uh, Your co-author, Catherine Alford, writes in Rage Baking about the gendered roles in the food world. You know, men get knives, women get butter and sugar. So does this idea, this return or resurgence reinforce in a way encouraging women getting back in the kitchen?
0: Well, um, certainly Rage Baking, which is a combination of baking recipes of pies and breads and cookies and cakes um, and essays and interviews with leading women across the country who are writers and bakers and novelists. The message of the book is not, hey, ladies, get back in the kitchen and your rage and your anger and all the things that you're going through will be fine. It's actually more about using baking as an activity that can help ground us. And I think this relates back to the pandemic and this rise of interest in baking, is that baking a loaf of bread entails enormous patience. You have to start it. You have to let the yeast bubble. You then add your flour. Then there's a first rising where the dough doubles in size, and it's this completely exciting activity of watching something become alive. And then, talk about Rage Baking, you get to take your fist and punch that dough down, and the release in your body and the release in the dough is so deeply satisfying. But then what happens is that it rises again and it becomes this great metaphor for women when you think about how many centuries women have had a, found a safe place in the kitchen and women have used the kitchen as a place to express themselves, their joy, their rage, their anger, their passion. And suddenly, a loaf of bread becomes this great metaphor for rising again and again. When we were writing this book, we were reminded very quickly of women rage-baked in the Revolutionary War. When women did not have the right to vote, you would find women in the kitchen baking something called an election cake, which was a very dense, fruit-filled cake that was a way of women expressing themselves when they were not allowed to go to voting booths and they were not allowed to have a voice. Um, You see it again during the civil rights movement in what was then called secret kitchens, where women would bake to raise money for civil rights leaders and activists. And you see it today in the way that cakes and cookies have become blank canvases for political messages. And now in this pandemic, we're seeing cakes that have messages, stay home, wash your hands, be responsible. So baking and cakes and cookies and breads have now become something more than a combination of flour and butter and sugar and yeast. They have always been political, but we're seeing it more and more now.
1: It's funny because I'm thinking after 9-11, remember everyone was into comfort food. You know, everyone wanted mac and cheese and mashed potatoes. What does this resurgence of baking signal about the time that we're living in now?
0: well, i'm it, that's such a great point because it's true. Um, during nine eleven um I've been a food writer for many decades. A lot of food editors were putting out calls for books about comfort food, and you're right. there were so many books written during that time about mac and cheese and spaghetti and meatballs and these kind of classic comforts. I think what comfort food was to nine eleven. Rage Baking and Baking is to this highly polarized time in politics in this country right now. So for me, I have written 15 cookbooks, none of them been about baking. But during the Kavanaugh hearings, when Dr. Blasey Ford was speaking and telling her memories and her stories... And I had the very distinct feeling that the men in that room were not listening to her. And for me, it brought up a lot of rage about how women are not heard. And people don't listen to women in the same way they listen to men. During that hearing in the fall of 2018, I found myself in my kitchen every night baking And not baking like a normal person. I would bake a pie, a cake, and a batch of cookies. The next night of the hearing, I found myself doing the same. And I started posting pictures, and I started hearing from more and more women, I'm doing the same. I can't seem to find anything else that gives me the comfort and the sense of grounding as baking does. And one thing led to another, and... A book was put together based on the events of my reaction and Catherine Alford, my friend and colleague, of how we baked our way through that hearing and how the rage translated into all of these baked goods and became some kind of a way to cope
1: My guest is Kathy Guns. She's a voice known to many NPR listeners as resident chef for Here and Now. She's a James Beard Award-winning journalist and author of 15 cookbooks, most recently co-author of Rage Baking. Well, you're speaking to a lot of baking, and there are a lot of people who fear that we could emerge from this period of self-isolation about 15 pounds heavier. What do you think? (laughs)
0: I know. The big joke is none of us will be able to get out of the front door when it's all over. You know, I have to say there's so many things that we're worried about right now, and there's so much anxiety. I guess I want to urge people not to beat up on themselves if they're cooking more and eating more and baking more and perhaps eating more sugary sweets. I mean, just the idea of having dessert every night is not a normal thing, at least for me. So I think in the scheme of things, it's not a big deal, but I also urge people to dance and listen to music and get out and walk if they can and move their bodies because we are more sedentary now that we're not going about life in a normal way. So, you know, the weight gain is kind of a joke and kind of not. But again, we just want to stay healthy. The other aspect about baking is that it's a great community builder. If you think about the act of baking a cake for a birthday, an anniversary, a wedding, it's about building community. It's about sharing. And here we are in this time where everybody's baking but we can't be together. So how do you build community when you're being asked to stay home? Um, I have found a few ways. When I bake something, I either freeze half with the idea that that's going to go to somebody who needs it or a neighbor who's helped me out. Or in some cases, I have texted people and say, I'm walking to your house, I have gloves on, I've used, I've baked this in a very safe, sterile way, and I'm dropping this off for you for an older neighbor, for a friend who's gone to the grocery store for you. There are different ways where we can leave a plate of cookies in front of someone's door, don't touch the doorknob, but let these people know I'm baked for you, I'm thinking of you. So it's a different way of building community, but it is still going back to that original idea of baking as a way of showing. Showing love, and building a sense of a neighborhood or a community. Well, now that some of us are in our solitary kitchens uh, <laughs> baking
1: away like preppers... <laughs> There's been there's been a lot of room for humor, and that's something I noticed in your, your chapter headlines, Sugar and Spice and Done Being Nice, uh, Whisk Fold, Knead Ride Up, No More Humble Pie, some of the titles. In addition to all of the sad news, there's been a lot of great humor online. Here is a four-year-old, Layla, who lives in the UK, a video of her response to not having takeout or delivery options, which went viral. Let's hear it.
3: Chinese is close too
2: all the deliveries you've literally got to eat mummy's cooking now I'm
0: sorry I'm so sorry (laughs) poor Layla (laughs) Poor Layla, it's the saddest and funniest thing simultaneously. I mean, that really, that tape, it, its just it just rips at your heart in so many ways. But one of the things that's happening in this country is that there is a resurgence or perhaps a rise for the first time in home cooking. There are so many Americans who have lived on takeout and microwave food and frozen food and restaurant food for a good part of their lives, and suddenly, that's not available. We still can get takeout in some cities, but if you don't know how to cook, you are really in a position right now where your choices are very limited. There is an enormous rise in YouTube cooking videos, in baking tutorials, people getting online, trying to teach people some of the fundamentals of cooking. Um, I was recently sent a chain mail thing about sending recipes around. You, you know, it's one of those things, you send a recipe to the first person on the list, and then you put your name next. And I've received about 20 really interesting recipes since I sent it out. And for many people, cooking for a young family or just cooking alone is not joyous and if ever there were a time when we can slow down and pay attention to the process of cooking and pay attention to the joy of creating something delicious it's now Mm -hmm. so if we can get out our front
1: doors we may just come away from this being better cooks and probably better members of a community of a cooking community
0: I I really hope so. I think that we are seeing some of the worst in people, but we're also seeing some of the best. And we're going to be a changed society after this. And it's really unclear what that will look like. But if people become better cooks and better at taking care of themselves and finding good food, that would be a real plus. Kathy Gunst, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Virginia.
1: Kathy Guntz, journalist, cookbook author, and resident chef for NPR's Here and Now. She and Catherine Alford are authors of Rage Baking, the transformative power of flour, fury, and women's voices. If you'd like to try one of her recipes, go to gppnews.org. And on the topic of baking, a listener named Jim recently called in to give his recommendation for a cooking-themed quarantine binge watch. Here he is.
4: Hi, my name is Jim. My recommendation for binge watching is The Chef Show, John Favreau and Chef Roy Choi. Nothing brings people closer than sharing a meal with maybe a bottle of wine. In these crazy times when we can't gather, I'll be sharpening my chef's knives and working on recipes. For we can gather again around a table of love.
1: Thanks so much, Jim, for sharing your suggestion. You too can leave us a voicemail with what you're reading, doing, thinking, watching, baking, rage baking these days. We're at 404 500 9457 we'd love to hear from you up next how one woman turned a stint in the federal pen into a writing career i'm virginia prescott stay with us for the queen of street lit when on second thought continues From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Wahita Clark went to federal prison in 1999, she knew she needed some way to support her teenage daughters— she never thought it would be writing that sustained her. Today, the Atlanta-based author has become known as the queen of street lit. She's published 15 novels, including four New York Times bestsellers. She now runs a company that helps other inmates find their voice and publish their own books. And she's making a documentary series about the importance of street lit as a genre. Before shelter-in-place orders and improvised home studios, wahida joined me at the GPB studio to talk about her work. The New Jersey-born author moved to Georgia when her husband. Who was incarcerated at the time was transferred to a facility here. Later, she ended up serving a nine and a half year sentence. She says she was working for a crooked company. Well, I'm not here to judge, but I wanted to find out what prompted her to pick up a pen in prison and start putting her thoughts on paper.
2: Well, I never wrote before. Um, I called home one day after I got situated and in my mind okay, I've got a nine and a half year prison sentence, I got to get busy. So I called home to my niece. I said, send me some money. She said, "Wahita, we'll see what we can do. I said, what do you mean you'll see what we can do? She said, we we'll get ready to pack everything up and go back up to Jersey because down here in Georgia, you're gone. They've come and repossessing your vehicles. They're foreclosing on the house. There's nothing here no more. We are out of here. So after I had that conversation, hung up, went back, cried and prayed. What am I going to do? In a federal prison, it costs money to live in prison. You got to pay to wash your clothes, dry your clothes, buy your food. So you need money in prison. So I'm like, what am I going to do? I prayed, and the next couple of mornings later, I'm in my job. In prison, You have to. everybody has to have a job. My job was being the prison librarian. So I'm sitting there after I made this prayer, and I pick up a magazine. I'm the only one in the library. And there was an article in it. It was a Vibe or XXL. And it had a picture of this guy, Shannon Holmes. It said that he was in prison and wrote a book. So I said, wait a minute, this guy's in prison and wrote a book? I'm in prison. So I'm sitting in the library. What's around me? Books. So then I start visualizing my name on the spines of the books. Waheeda Clark, Waheeda Clark. That's when I got it. I said, I'm going to write me a book. He was in prison and did it. I'm in prison. I can do it too. So.
1: And you took a creative writing class in prison?
2: And let me tell you, I didn't know how to write, didn't know I could write, how the universe works. Right after I said, okay, I'm going to write a book, a young lady, well, older lady, Dorothy Deering, on the streets, her profession was a literary agent. So she had just so happened to ask around the same time that I had this epiphany, Mm -hmm. asked the warden, could she give a class on creative writing? Got it approved, put up the sheet. I saw it. Ooh, creative writing class. Okay, because I don't know how to write. Of course, my name was the first one on there. Got in the class, did everything, got it done.
1: Wow. So how were you doing it? Like just sketching things out on piece of paper? Did you yellow have Yellow
2: people... legal pads. Oh, really? Handwriting <laughs> it lot of those every seem... <laughs> day, all day on a yellow legal pad. So
1: did you pass them around? I mean, what was your test market there? Oh, yeah,
2: that's exactly. My test market was the inmates. Every time I finished a chapter, I would give it to them. And it got so good, I go to work in the morning at the library. They be lining up, waiting on me to come open the doors to get the next chapter so oh, they can read wow. and come on back.
1: Oh, that's so old school. They're kind of like, you that's know, right. old installments. That's <laughs>
2: right. And even with the title, I went old school with the title because my husband, the one suggested the title, Thugs and the Women Who Love Them. I was like, that is horrible. So I took a piece of cardboard and I wrote down the titles that I wanted and I saved his for last. There's about 10 of them. And I passed them all around the prison yard. Said, check the one you like. So when I got back my cardboard, <laughs> Don't the tell title me. that he liked was <laughs> it was hands down.
1: Thugs and the women who love them. Yes, ma'am. So that was your first book. Your second book. These just poured out of you. You've said before.
2: Well, the first book, Thugs and the Women Who Love Them. Once I said, okay, I'm going to write, and I got on the roll. The characters, everything just came to life. I couldn't stop. So that was the first thing that the publisher said that I got when I was behind bars. Waheeda, we're going to have to cut this book down. I said, there's no way you're cutting that book down. Mm -mm. So that's when I thought it. We make a part one and a part two. Thugs and the women who love them, every thug needs a lady. So I was the first one in my genre to even do that, to have a sequel. Now, but everybody's doing trilogies, sequels, and whole series of books. But I was the first one in my genre to do it.
1: Well, okay, so I wanted to just hop on that because this has become such a thing. You know, this kind of urban lit. Some people call it thug lit, maybe mm-hmm. largely due Street to the books. Street lit. Street mm-hmm. lit, Hood that fiction. kind of So were you writing about your life? Were you writing about stories that you heard? Where was your material coming from?
2: Okay, so listen to this, Virginia. When I told my husband, because he was an author as well, he's an author, I said, I'm going to write a book. So the first time he didn't say anything. The second time I told him, he still didn't respond. I said, "I'm going to write a book." So he wrote me back. He said, "If you're going to write a book, in in if, to make money for you, you have to write some pimps, some hoes, some drugs. You're going to have to bring it." So, those type of books was Iceberg Slim, Donald Goins. My mother used to have those books on her bookshelves, and we used Iceberg to sneak Slim, in there to go to school, Right, and grab classic. them, and sneak them and read them in school. So those were the original street lit authors. So I d- thought about my childhood. And I just took my three best friends and I just turned it into a story, and it just it just morphed mm.
1: so there of course, there's a lot of criticism that this is not real literature mm-hmm. that this is you know a populist marketing machine that is turning this what, what what's your response to that?
2: <laughs> well, it is what it is um, we write what we know most of the time uh, and if you go to the movies to watch uh, Terminator or Godfather or whatever, there's violence and all kind of stuff in the movies. So what do you say? It's, it's, not, it's not theater because there's so much violence and stuff. So just because we write about hoes and pimps and drugs, it, we don't care if you call it literature or not. We write because our fans like to read, and this is a way of our communication. It's a part of our culture, just like hip-hop. Hip-hop and street lit, they're the same thing, except we write it in book. The rappers, they put it in. Song and rap so it's the same thing
1: Wajita Clark is my guest. She's author of several street-lit fictional books, some of which she published while in prison. The genre has made the jump, though, from prison cells to the bestseller list. And Wajita is a forerunner in this genre. Today she runs her own publishing company and helps other prisoners publish their own novels. Um, I wanted to just key in on another ally besides this literary agent that you met in prison while writing at a federal prison camp in West Virginia. Yes, ma'am. A lady named... (laughs) Martha Stewart's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable!
2: Oh, you know it. You that. were in
1: the same. You were in doing time the same time as we were Martha doing Stewart. Doing the
2: same time and uh, during the same time, and it was it was funny because we knew she was coming there. Of course, her camp they had faked the media out, so they was going to Connecticut when she came to Audison. And sure enough, the day she came, I didn't know when she was coming, but the day that she came, I was in the TV room watching basketball and writing. And my prison mom, Diana Sanchez, she came to me, sticks accent puerto rican accent daughter daughter get dressed get dressed i said what for she said the lady is here the lady is here i said what lady martha stewart and she's asking for you she's asking for you get dressed so i'm like oh my gosh so i had to go get dressed and martha it looked like a meet and greet not a prison the women were all there and martha <laughs> you know it was just common stuff it was just you know she just fell right in and Got ready to do her time. And then right before she left, actually like two days before she left, I said, Martha, you got to look at my business plan for my publishing company before you go. So she told me to meet her down at the library. She'll look it over and give me her feedback. So wow, that so was really it. Martha was
1: in six months in and out. She oh. came, worked out, did her did her thing and was gone. What a story. Um, obviously, there are restrictions, you know, on some of your freedom. You said earlier you had to pay for everything. So you had to pay for your yellow legal pads yes, that you were writing That's on. That's right. But was there ever any threat? I mean, did your books get censored? Was there any retribution or pushback for the books that you were writing? Absolutely. Um, First off, I got in trouble for
2: getting published. That's why I got kicked out of Lexington and sent to Alderson. So if that didn't happen, I wouldn't even have met Martha. So Mm -hmm. that was a good thing. But uh, the prison, they wanted to know. They called me to the lieutenant's office and asked me, held my book up and said, how did you do this? So I said, what do you mean? They said, how did you get this published? I said, you guys gave a creative writing course. Mm -hmm. I took the creative writing course, and I did everything it said to do, so that's how I got published. So they sent me back. They called me back again. So the next day, they said, we're going to have to put you in the hole while we investigate why you were able to do that. So yeah, there's, there's repercussions, huh. but you know, that's prison life.
1: Well, wow. How many books did you publish while you were in prison? Seven. Wow. And
2: seven while I was books. in there, it, it was sitting the Essence bestsellers list, the USA Today bestsellers list. I was, um, while I was in, in the hole, I had noticed that a lot of the women had pen pals, mm-hmm. so I had called home and said, send me some flyers of my books. So we had some flyers. I asked the ladies in all of their little pen pal mail. Each one had like 10, 20 pen pals. Send them out to the prisons. And then my flyers and my books start circulating throughout the prison. So that's how I really...
1: Became well known. Wow, what was the, what was it like for your status in prison as someone who was writing about this life? Basically, easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lesson <laughs> right. for you. Okay, so uh, you mentioned the business plan. So I'm curious about that part of your work because of your publishing company. You work with about forty other authors now, mm-hmm. yes, ma'am. mainly. Many of them are currently incarcerated. Yes, Get their books out there. Some of them, brand new writers. So how do you support them to try and find their voice? Yeah, it's much
2: harder now to publish a author that's in prison because they're not able to promote. You know, nowadays you have to be out there to promote, you gotta be on social media, you gotta
1: be you gotta be visible. Yeah. Bottom line. So you're now working on a documentary series about street lit as a genre. What's it called? It's called The Queen of Street Lit. <laughs> well, there you go. And you're the person to do it. Yes, this is filming now in Atlanta and New Jersey. Uh, Atlanta, where you're, where you're new from. New
2: Jersey, New York, New Philadelphia, and we're going to L.A. next weekend.
1: So how is it different working in film versus working on paper, writing? woo
2: Virginia, that's a big difference. Yeah, I bet. It's a big difference. And uh, I have a whole new respect for people behind the scenes, like you guys running the cameras and behind the scenes. That's a lot of work. It's a big difference, um, but I'm embracing it because now the books have to be—everything is visual, so these, all these books that I've accumulated and published over the years, they have to be put on film. You know,
1: I wonder for you, after the life that you've lived and that you're writing about, <laughs> do you think if you had discovered writing earlier, you would be living a different life?
2: I would be living a whole different life. Um, that's why I said. Everybody asks do you have any regrets? If anything would have changed— I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Huh. One little thing, it would, everything would have been different. Because from the time that she said, okay, your sentence start, I saw how everything led up to me writing and being who I am. So if any little
1: bit would have changed by a minute, I wouldn't be here. So the genre of street lit, you have said, can help people and communities heal. How do you see that happening? Okay, for example... My last book, Thug 7,
2: is part seven to the Thug series. One of the main characters. But his son was killed right in his presence. He was murdered. Something triggered in him. He couldn't just. He couldn't let the grief go. He couldn't let it go until finally, mentally, it sent him over the edge. So the book, everybody's reading the book like, yeah, 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 yeah. And at the end, they find out that it's all in his head. Uh-huh. Mental health issue had a mental breakdown no one saw it coming no one expected it so my books when they read it oh my so many people's writing me now saying oh my gosh I'm so
1: glad you touched on that I'm so glad I've just experienced that so so you're surfacing things that you know maybe somebody who is living a life that they're probably never going to read uh you know invisible man or for whom the bell tolls (laughs) they're finding it in your books Some are. Yes, ma'am. Is that the point, that you're reaching people that other art forms may not?
2: When I started writing, that wasn't my agenda. My agenda was to make money to feed myself and my family. But as my career kept still going on, um, of course, I grow. Everything grows and evolves. That wasn't the plan for Part 7. Wasn't a plan at all, but it just so happened. My nonprofit, Prodigal Sons and Daughters, we have a mental health clinic up in New Jersey. We're moving it down here. We're, um, we're opening another one down here in Georgia, and mental health everything is, everything is mental health, mental health, mental health. That's and then I even needs. see with myself and my family, me being in jail all of them years, in prison all of them years, coming home, getting reacquainted with the family. Um, they're taking them through the crazy stuff I went through because they did the time with me. Everybody is affected we're all affected. And no one's talking about it, especially in our communities. We don't discuss it.
1: Well, Wahida Clark, thank you so much. What a pleasure (laughs) speaking with you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Wahida Clark, she is the queen of street lit. That's the name of the documentary series that she is making that's coming out. We have more information about all of her many titles. And you got to see the covers. (laughs) You guys just got to see the covers at our website, gpbnews.org. We're going to check in with a couple of Georgians and see how they're coping behind closed doors when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are checking in with folks around Georgia to see what they're doing, watching, and reading while shut in at home. Jessica Handler is author of two memoirs and the novel The Magnetic Girl, which recently won the 2020 Southern Book Prize. First of all, Jessica, congratulations. Thank you. That is just something. Now, you teach creative writing at Oglethorpe University. Are you teaching online now?
5: I do. I am teaching. My full course load has moved uh, to remote, so I do classes on Zoom and chat rooms, and um, you know, it's been going. It's been going okay. It requires kind of a different set of skills and different kind of thinking, but we've been we've been doing a great job, and my students have been really all hands on deck. All right. So, what are you doing? What are you what are you doing during this time? Well, when I'm not teaching, um, because I'm teaching my full schedule, um, there's a, about five things that are keeping us going in this household. Um, I'm taking long walks around the neighborhood, both by myself and with my husband, Mickey Dubrow, who's also an author. And did you know we have a beaver dam in our neighborhood? I had no idea. And you're in my neighborhood. We did. Yes. So we've been walking around the neighborhood and we've got creeks and a beaver dam and we try to do a mile or so a day. And we're lucky because the weather has been good. Um, Teaching online at the end of the day, I'm a little over pixelated. Um, But I've been having coffee hour or happy hour periodically with friends, including my writing group, um, including some book events and um, just with friends, sometimes on the phone and sometimes um, on video conferencing. So that's been helpful, you know, to have a glass of wine on the front porch and catch up with people through a screen. (laughs) Um, So that's been, you know, that's been really helpful because we all need to reach out and be in touch with each other. And um, sometimes, too, with neighbors just across the porch. I have a yoga practice, and until about a month ago, I never thought that the phrase online yoga would be a part of anybody's life. Mm. Um, but I, my yoga studio is now my upstairs bathroom and my laptop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do yoga uh, with Nirvana Yoga um, at least once a week. And that's been really helpful, partly because... I'm tense and everybody's tense and do a little yoga and you realize that your shoulders have been up in your ears. Hmm. Um, I am not a very good cook, uh, but I have recently joined a CSA in the neighborhood and I'm curious about what I learned to cook with vegetables and fruit and whatever I get. So that's keeping me interested and making me feel secure in terms of um, what's going to be on the table.
3: Hmm.
1: What, what have you tried that you hadn't tried before? Um,
5: what have we tried? Well, we haven't gotten any yet. It doesn't start yet. But um, we made cookies the other day. I've never baked anything before. And I've gotten pretty good at salads with things like artichoke hearts and hearts of palm and um, sun-dried tomatoes. So it looks good. And I am giving my permit myself permission to not write right now. I was working on a new book, and I, my brain is not going there right now. Mm. Um, so I will again. So what I'm doing instead is I have a guitar, and I'm relearning how to play. And I used to play, and so I'm playing. And I have a drum kit, and I have been taking drum lessons by Skype for about a year. So
1: I actually was just playing before you called. So that's endorphins. Yeah, okay, that was going to ask. What is that doing for you? It is meditative to
5: uh, play drums. It's meditative. It uses different muscles. It's rhythmic. And, uh, yeah, pounding on things is kind of helpful for 20 (laughs) minutes or
1: half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, is there anything that you've learned that you thought maybe you couldn't do without that you can? Or maybe something that you found kind of essential that you never expected? You know what I've learned is I am not a patient person. I have never been known as a patient
5: person. I was a television producer before this, and that's a very um, hurry-up kind of profession. And I've learned that I can be patient. I've learned that um, I can just take it easy for an afternoon or go for a walk, or if I suddenly realize that oh my gosh, I need olive oil, or oh my gosh, what am I going to do without such and such, Um, I can wait a day and figure it out. And it's okay to sit on the porch and look at the birds and hang out with my husband and just, you know, stay safe and
1: calm. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thank you, Virginia. Jessica Handler. She teaches creative writing at Oglethorpe University. She is an author. Her book, The Magnetic Girl, a novel, recently won the 2020 Southern Book Prize. If you're looking for a little bit of brain food while you're at home, GPB and the Atlanta History Center are initiating a series of author talks beginning next week. On Wednesday, April 15th, I will be moderating a conversation with Jennifer Steinhauer, who has spent 25 years reporting for the New York Times. She covered Congress. She covered City Hall. She was the L.A. Bureau Chief. And she's out with a new book called The Firsts, The Inside Story of Women Reshaping Congress. Her talk was scheduled to be in March for Women's History Month at the Atlanta History Center but like so many events that's been canceled so we are picking it up online if you are interested you can go to GPB News or the Atlanta History Center to sign up Abby Wright is among the legion of students disappointed when her school's spring musical was canceled, along with just about everything else. Then the junior at Southeast Whitfield High School in Dalton, Georgia, saw Broadway singer and actress Laura Benanti's post on Twitter for students just like her.
3: This may seem silly, but I know that a lot of high schools were going to have their musicals, and those musicals got canceled. And that is
1: a bummer. So if you would like to sing a song that you are not going to get to sing now, and tag me, I want to see you. I want to hear it. Abby's father posted a video of her under Benanti's Sunshine Songs hashtag, and hundreds of people, including some other Broadway stars, clicked and commented. Abby shared some of the backstory with On Second Thought.
3: I'm Abby Wright, and I am a junior at Southeast Whitfield High School in Dalton, Georgia. Our musical this year was 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. I played Judy in the show. She's the new girl at the office. It was a really, really fun role to play and I loved it so much. We realized that things were not gonna go as planned probably the week that we opened the show. In our case, we were able to do a few performances, but we quickly realized that our opening weekend would also be our closing weekend. It was very hard to find out that something completely out of our control was able to shut us down so easily. It just did not turn out the way that we had planned. I had originally heard of Sunshine Songs in a it was a BuzzFeed article and I had watched a bunch of people had done them. Stay healthy
4: everyone. I was supposed to play the captain anything goes today we're all alone no chaperone can get our number
3: the world's in summer let's misbehave It was just a really fun way to like put ourselves out there. It was amazing to see the response from other people online and just, you know, feel the support from the other theater people. One thing that was really cool for me, I got a response from um, the woman who plays Judy in the actual Broadway production, Stephanie J. Block. She was the original Judy and that was something that was crazy to me because Judy's been my dream role for almost two years now and I've looked up to her for a while and so that was really cool. And then the woman who does Sunshine Songs, she liked and she commented on my dad's video. And it was just crazy. I told all my theater friends about it. They were so excited. It was one of like the best experiences ever. Just to have them like the video and to know that they saw it. I have always been one of the people who is telling my friends social distance stay at home take the precautionary measures that you have to because I, I understand how big of a deal it is and if it isn't affecting us it's affecting somebody else and so I think it's important for us to take the measures that we need to make so Unfortunately, some of the measures that we had to take canceled our show, but if it saved lives in the long run, that's all that matters to me. We're hoping that once everything settles down and quarantine's over, we're really hoping that we'll be able to put on a summer performance of it. So it isn't the end of the world, but it was very hard to get over.
1: Abby Wright, cast as Judy in her high school's production of Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. We posted photos from the production at gpbnews.org. And you can check out videos from all over the country by searching for hashtag sunshine songs on Twitter. Pope Francis commenced Holy Week by celebrating Palm Sunday Mass in an empty St. Peter's Basilica. Churches across the world are live streaming services throughout this week leading up to Easter, the most sacred time on the Christian calendar. St. Anne's Catholic Church in Columbus, Georgia found an innovative way of connecting with its 1,500 congregants during virtual Masses. Taping their photos to the pews. Father Emmanuel Vasconcelos or Father Manny is Associate Pastor at St. Anne's and join me from Columbus on Good Friday. Hello and welcome.
4: Hello. Thank you for having me, Virginia.
1: Well, thank you for being here. And you all have been celebrating live streaming masses for a couple of weeks now. What's it like to walk out in front of an empty church?
4: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting feeling because we know that people are watching, um, but we don't hear anything, we don't see it, um, and we have to see it usually after the fact. Sometimes people make a comment on uh, the Facebook page that we have for our parish. They say, thank you so much, it's been good to hear you and see you. Um, so we get the experience after the fact somewhat, but it really is a very different experience than what we're used to.
1: So where did you get this idea of taping photographs of your congregants in the pews?
4: So that was something that I actually saw happening in Italy. There was a priest in Italy, and and certainly they had uh, already quarantined very early in March, I believe. And, And so this particular priest had the idea of having his parishioners send photos to him to place In the pews so that as he looks out of the altar which we're used to seeing people not empty pews Mm. um, he was able to see them and remember them and so when i read that message that story i I went up to our pastor father robert schlageter and i said to him we got to do this we've just got to do this he's like okay we started the next day was actually our first time having live stream mass a daily mass without a congregation and so he mentioned it right then and there he's like well we already have one photo we're putting it in the pew and then we had everyone email their photos to a a special email for our parish and so we have at least 650 if not more uh, photos in our pews and and visible to us while we have mass for them and, and within
1: this is the height of the christian holidays At Palm Sunday Mass, Pope Francis asked the faithful to devote themselves to service at this time. So how are you celebrating this Easter Mass?
4: Well, this is a a Holy Week unlike any other, uh, I think, that any of us can say. You know, it's unprecedented. Um, And it's very difficult to consider celebrating in the midst of such anxiety and, and fear. But I also reflected on how this these days um, when you look at the origins like when things started like this that the disciples fled when jesus was being crucified and they were hiding in their homes they were uh, quarantined in many ways from all that was going on in that moment that first good friday that first easter and here god comes to to console um, to show that he has power over sin and death. And and so it's a a great way for us to experience what it was like for those first disciples, what it was like for them to to be in fear and hiding and still waiting on the Lord to bring his healing and his consolation.
1: So do you think your parishioners are going to send new photos for Easter in their Sunday best and their Easter bonnets? (laughs)
4: I wonder. We we might get a few. I know we tried to make sure that some of the parishioners were sitting in their usual spots in the church.
1: <laughs> well, Father Manny, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us, and happy Easter to you.
4: The same to you. God bless.
1: Father Emmanuel Vasconcelos, otherwise known as Father Manny, sharing how St. Anne's Catholic Church in Columbus, Georgia, is connecting with parishioners despite coronavirus. I recorded that interview for GPB's What You Need to Know web video series, brief conversations and updates as the coronavirus pandemic unfolds. We're producing new videos nearly every day, and you can watch them on GPB's YouTube channel or at gpb.org virus. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family. And finally, among After those lost to COVID 19 this week was Grammy Award winning singer songwriter John Prine. He's known for austere, humble, and witty songs like Some Humans Ain't Human, Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore, and The Biting Sam Stone. Little
4: pitchers have big ears. Don't stop to count the years Sweet songs never last too long on broken radios mm-hmm.
1: Prine had a dedicated following without ever putting out a real hit record himself, but other artists famously covered his songs, like Bonnie Raitt's version of Angel from Montgomery. Make me an angel That flies from Montgomery Prine counted Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, and Bob Dylan among his fans, and his unadorned style inspired the rise of Americana music. So in tribute to John Prine, we're going to leave you today with Clay Pigeons.
2: Where the people say, y'all I sing a song with a friend Change the shape of the man And get back in the game and start playing again
1: on Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hope this time of withdrawal from the outside pulls you closer to what matters over this holiday weekend. We wish you a happy Easter and happy Passover. That's from all of us at On Second Thought.
2: He used to be alone Change the words to this song And start singing again